0: From the World Economic Forum. I'm Beatrice DiCaro, and this is the Book Club podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Paul Doherty, Group Chief Executive Technology and Chief Technology Officer at Accenture, and co author of the book Radically Human How New Technology is Transforming Business and Shaping Our Future. Radically Human is the follow-up to Human plus Machine, which looked at the ways leading companies were using artificial intelligence to transform their processes and grow the business without displacing humans. Paul and co-author James Wilson saw the shift towards a more human-centered use of AI technology accelerate during the pandemic. And in Radically Human, they argue AI will drive four key areas for companies to be successful in the future. Talent, trust, experiences, and sustainability. Accenture is working with the World Economic Forum and Microsoft to create a global collaboration village in the metaverse, which will be further developed at the annual meeting. My colleague Kate Whiting joins us again to interview Paul, and she starts by asking him to explain what Radically Human is about.
1: The fundamental premise of Radically Human is that there's all these stunning, amazing, you know, exponential advances in technology that are happening. And the premise is that the more human-like the technology becomes, the more radical the leap in human capability and human productivity of people that we can drive. And we wrote the book really for two reasons. One is for individuals, because a lot of people sometimes are suspicious of or you know concerned about the the new technologies. And the message is that embracing these technologies is really the path to success. And for businesses, The real message is that you need to think differently about the application of these technologies to drive the benefits because it's not just about the technology. It's not just about the people, but it's powering them up with technology and new capabilities and matching with the the human strengths and amazing human skills people have to really drive improvements in your business. That's the underlying premise. And uh, it's not just an idea. We did a lot of research around this very large research project over a number of years with 10,000 companies. I think it's the largest ever study that was done of the use of enterprise technology or use of technology in companies. And it highlighted some really interesting results that led us down this path. And one of the results was that, you know, pre-pandemic, we did a survey which showed that companies that were leaders in applying technology, that were applying technology in a more innovative way, in a more radical way, as we suggest, were outperforming others by a factor of 2x, of two times, which is really stunning. That was before the pandemic. Then when when we redid the research. After the pandemic and the period of you know, growth following that, as companies really doubled down on technology, it was really amazing to see what the results were. And it surprised us. And that 2x outperformance by those that were you know, leaders in applying technology increased to 5x. And it was about how they were adapting these new technologies, how they were pairing them you know, with their workforce and with the talent and with the way customers use technology to drive different outcomes. And that's really the upshot of Radically Human.
2: That's incredible. Am I right in thinking you call them those companies AI achievers?
1: Yeah, AI achievers. And AI is a big part of it. Cloud, AI, and the metaverse are three technologies that we really talk about a lot and that I believe are really foundational and the mega trends for companies over the next decade, you know, between now and 2030. Cloud you know, is the underlying, I think about as the operating system of business. It's how you, how the, how you make the business work more efficiently, taking advantage of innovation more effectively and more quickly. And companies are on that journey. Artificial intelligence then. Becoming a real differentiator and driving the insights and processes and the way the companies work and the way that people work. And that's where the AI achievers come in, those that were adapting AI more effectively, driving superior results. And then the metaverse just coming on the scene to some extent, but we're already seeing how that becomes kind of a new layer of experience and products for companies. Also, with some hype and questions around the metaverse that are, that are natural at the early stage of a technology.
2: That's incredible. Later, we'll get to some best practice examples of how that works. But your earlier bit was human and machine, which looked at AI and how humans and technology are more powerful when they work together. What does it mean when you say AI is radically human and how are companies benefiting from that?
1: Human plus machine, as you said, our premise there, we we wrote that book to set the story straight on AI. That was about six or seven years ago when we started the research, published the book roughly five years ago. And we wrote that book because we thought the narrative on AI was wrong. You know, companies were, you know, it was being interpreted as you know, it's gonna eliminate all the jobs and it's gonna, you know, lead to this dystopian future. And we didn't believe that was right. And that's why we wrote Human Plus Machine and did the research around that. And then what we saw after Human Plus Machine is that our view was really borne out that AI, you know, was really about. The, the blending the, the human and the AI or machine capability together. Now the radically human takes that a step further. And I'd say we, we believe we're moving into kind of a new era. If you think about technology, you know, think about how you've used technology yourself over the last, you know, say five, 10, 20 years. We've had to adapt to how technology works. So we we use our thumbs on these tiny little keyboards, QWERTY keyboards that were Designed the way they were to slow typing down because mechanical typewriters would get jammed up. That's the state of the art in terms of how humans and machines have worked together. What we're talking about, human plus machine, is kind of moving from an era where humans were forced to use machines on their own terms. Human Plus Machine was, how do we pair humans together? How do you use voice and other forms of interaction so we can communicate in our own terms? How do we pair the incredible analytic capabilities of AI to enhance the investigative and you know curiosity and other powers that humans have? With Radity Human, we believe we're moving a step beyond that. We can actually use this more human-like technology now to enter a new area where we actually design everything around the humans, and it's about how do we accentuate radically human capability by applying technology in support of humans. And that's just a radical shift from where we were five, 10 years ago, where it was all about how do we spend, you know, as a company, if you're deploying technology, you spend immense amounts of money in the change management, which was bending the will of people you know, to use the technology. And we think moving to this new era has profound benefits for individuals and uh, businesses as well.
2: Um, if we can get to some sort of examples of how companies are using AI to grow now? You said that there's five times growth since the pandemic. Those companies that are using these technologies actually are now seeing such a great return on their investment in these technologies. So, what kind of things are they doing?
1: Lots of great examples. I think one of the things that really exploded during the pandemic and that's now really taken off is basic areas, things like call center AI, artificial intelligence applied in how you interact with companies. I alluded to this a bit earlier. And it was needed during the pandemic because, in many cases, you couldn't staff the call centers, you couldn't keep people in, and you, ha- you know companies have shifted to allowing remote operations and such. And there were new queries that were coming in that you didn't have before. So how do you answer entirely new lines of questioning that were coming in because of new concerns or new opportunities raised by the pandemic? So that's an area that really took off. And in fact, with AI during the pandemic, we saw sixty-three percent first-time adoption of AI. So if a company had not used AI, before the pandemic, they were 63% more likely to use it during the pandemic. So, just rapid uptake in using AI. Is another area that we're seeing is companies using. AI and supply chains with supply chain disruption, everything that's happened and still happening around the world, using AI to get better visibility into both the demand and the supply around their products and where it's going. Uh, Something we've been working on for years is areas around regulatory compliance. For example, uh, money laundering, um, compliance and things like that in financial services. AI is really good at sorting through these transaction logs and these voluminous sets of data to find patterns that might be fraudulent and then surface them to human investigators who can do the further work and uh, verify. what's happening. But then we're talking about a radically human is how do you go to the next step? You in applying artificial intelligence. And that's why we talk in the book about this ideas framework. And it's a clever acronym that my co-author came up with to give credit where credit is due, Jim Wilson, because we have these five core areas. Intelligence, which is about making AI less artificial, more human. Data, where we talk about not just big data, but looking at minimum amounts of data as well as maximum big data. Expertise, which is using human expertise and not just uh, machine learning, in which people talk about how how to use human expertise. Architecture and new ways of building living systems and then you know, strategy, which is I think one of the real key parts of the book where we talk about how do you develop strategy in this new environment. That's called IDEAS, I-D-E-A-S. That's the acronym my co-author Jim uh, came up with. He's very clever. Yeah, Think about one great example of how that framework's applied to your question of new ways of applying technology. And expertise is how do you use human expertise to make the technology more effective and blend the two together? A great example is Etsy, the platform. You may have used Etsy to buy things like these bracelets and such, you kind of find different offbeat, quirky products. The. Way you find them is by searching in different ways. And Etsy has a way of categorizing based on design and aesthetics and, and such, which is very difficult to do through algorithms. But blending the design capabilities of their human designers who understand those concepts with the way the algorithms work, they're able to embed ideas like design aesthetics into the technology to help customers find their products more effectively and help merchants classify their technologies better. And a you know, real example of the kind of radically human shift we're talking about that wouldn't, you know, couldn't be done without taking this different approach.
2: That's really fascinating. So it's actually how humans and machine are kind of collaborating together, but the human is very much at the center of that and is kind of directing it rather than it being, as you say, previously seen as almost a battle between the two to some sort of extent.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And you nailed it, which is, in our first book, we talked about this idea of the missing middle, which were the new jobs that we believe would be created, which are about humans and machines working together. And that's what we're seeing bearing out, like this, this idea of an algorithmic design aesthetic specialist, you know, who would have thought you'd have a job? category like that, but that's the kind of thing that you see forming. And I think going forward, as you look about the roles, you know, the way we design work and the roles that people play, it'll be about how do we adjust the skills that people have to use the technology to do their jobs in, in different ways. And that's uh, something we talk a lot about in the book as well as new ways of talent development to accentuate uh, you know, the capability that people have.
2: That's really interesting because the forum does a lot of work around the future of work. And obviously the, the jobs that we're talking about now didn't exist, possibly some of them pre-pandemic. You know, last week I was writing about the chief remote officer, which obviously didn't exist yeah. before yeah. we all started working hybrid. So these are jobs, aren't they now, that we're seeing that are being developed because of how we're working with AI, which is really yeah. exciting.
1: And, the jo- and that's why the uh, some of the work that the forum does, which I'm you know, very familiar with, they're doing great work in this area. It's about how companies become learning organizations as well, because the jobs are changing so fast. You can't just go hire people with these new job categories because they're merging so fast, they won't be there. So, Increasingly, companies need to be talent creators, which is something we talk about in the book. We have a whole chapter on talent. We talk about this idea of becoming a talent creator. You need To take ownership as a company for developing this talent because there are unique skills to your company that might not exist. An example we've talked about before is in the uh, energy space work we're doing with energy companies that do drilling and such to do it more effectively rather than the old way of uh, technicians which could only you know pipes and valves and things, they're operating the machinery with artificial intelligence and sensors and visualization through game engines and such. So it's a digitally enabled physical field services technician. That's a job that if you didn't bring your workforce along and train them, that kind of job does, you know, that kind of skill doesn't exist unless you take the proactive steps to build it. So I think again, the work the forum's doing on this front is very important and points the way to these learning platforms and companies becoming talent creators as we go to the future.
2: We touched a little bit on the second part of the book, which really focuses on how AI technologies will drive these four key areas for companies to be successful in the future, which is talent, trust, experiences, and sustainability. And right. what I love about that is that they're so solutions-focused as well.
1: I think sustainability is one of the areas where there's you know, very interesting things happening. It's really important to, to factor into this kind of radically human journey because there's, there's for two reasons. One is the technology itself can be... A, a bad, a contributor in a bad way to sustainability challenges. We talk about that as red IT. We use this term red IT in the book because all these technologies, they consume more resources and more energy, but there's ways to do it effect, more effectively and efficiently. So we talk about how do you change red IT to green IT? And it requires a new mindset in terms of the way you apply technology uh, we've been part of, of founding uh, something called the Green Software Foundation, which is an open-source foundation dedicated to green IT practices. So That's real, one really important thing to build in. The other reason is you know, getting to solutions is, is that IT is often the solution you know, to sustainability challenges. One example is work we're doing with an energy company on using you know sensing technology, imaging technology, and artificial intelligence and cloud technology to track methane emissions more effectively. Methane is a very uh, high impact form of uh, emissions That's uh, that, that's uh, a lot of the atmospheric issues. And it comes about through leaks in different ways that are very difficult to detect and then remediate. But uh, with using technology, you can find it much more effectively. So that's an example. Virtual Singapore is an example where they're looking at how do you develop a digital twin of a city, to you know operate it you know much more effectively. And those are some great examples of applying the technology on a larger scale. And many of the problems that we face are these, you know, large scale, planet scale problems that really can only be applied if you if you tackle them in this way. And it requires multiple companies in a lot of cases come together to do so, applying the technologies.
2: Thank you. I appreciate you touching on the red to, to green technology, because that, as you say, is, is part of the problem. So it's sort of trying to decarbonize like them hard to bait sectors are having to think about how they decarbonize across the entire value chain like the IT sector in itself has to think about decarbonizing itself, doesn't it?
1: Yes, the IT sector has to think about it. And every company applying technology has to think about it because every company is in essence becoming a technology company. The biggest technology is pervading every part of the value chain, every part of what they do. So companies need to think about it. It becomes really important in the metaverse kind of context. When you think about blockchain and new types of applications that companies are developing, they can be very uh, resource intensive, you know if you, th- you use proof of work, the mining people talk about with blockchain, that can be very environmentally impacting. you know you talk about your know, Bitcoin using the energy of something like Argentina. It doesn't have to be that way in the Ethereum, the blockchain platform moving to proof of stake based verification, dramatically reduce their energy intensity by a factor of over ninety nine percent. So and co- so companies have these decisions they can make on how to apply technology to be much more energy efficient.
2: Yeah, brilliant. I want to ask because I know you're an advocate for gender equality as well, particularly in STEM fields. How can AI, which sometimes is criticized for being coded with gender bias, um, help to overcome it?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. I'll just start by saying every technology is neutral. It's the people applying it who inject biases, or it's in AI's case, it's a historical data that we're training AI on that reflects human bias that then has risk of you know creating bias in it you know the famous example from one of the large tech companies they applied ai in the recruiting process it uh, unfortunately screened out a lot of women and optimized towards men because that's what they had historically hired so it's an, it was an unforeseen consequence but that probably you know should have been been foreseen in that case and that points to what the solution is in what, from a, a gender equality perspective, in applying these technologies is we believe that every company needs to have principles and policies around responsible AI, which is about accountability, it's about fairness and making, you know, screening out bias. It's about trust, it's security, and other things you need to look at. We talk about this a lot in our book. In Accenture, we've actually codified responsible AI into a set of processes and principles that we monitor and are driving across our organization. So if you're designing a recruiting algorithm or if you're designing a loan approval processor or something, uh, any of these algorithms could get bias injected into them depending on how you develop and train them. But it's unacceptable for that to happen. And the onus is on us as the engineers and as the designers and as the testers of these systems to understand how to use tools to understand bias and correlation of these types of things and make sure we're developing systems that's fair. There's no reason we cannot do that. and It's very possible. It's just a matter of going about it the right way, which is what we're trying to bring about to education. The other part of it then is making sure we celebrate a lot of the great Role models, diverse voices are developing and leading in the technology. That's why I'm very proud to be on the board of Girls Who Code, where it's about investing in uh, girls and, and women in, in technology. And there's so many great examples of role models in the technology field that we often don't celebrate a lot. fei Lee, you know, pioneer from Stanford and Google. And uh, one of the pioneers in artificial intelligence, I could go on and list a whole bunch more. And uh, we need to increasingly celebrate the role models we have so that we encourage more girls, more women, more diverse voices across every dimension to enter into technology and into the emerging technology areas.
2: If they can see it, they can be it. So I guess now I want to come on to, let's call it the metaverse part of our conversation. The word itself is one of Oxford Dictionary's words of the year, I just discovered. (laughs) You refer to it in the book as one of the next wave of frontier technologies. What's radically human um, in your view about the metaverse?
1: When we talk about the metaverse, we're not just talking about, you know, putting the headsets in and going the headsets all day long, like in Ready Player One. We're talking about a metaverse that is not just about 3D, but it's how do you enable Two-dimensional experiences that you could get on your mobile phone or your or your laptop. That's critical to thinking about the metaverse, and it's about how you create shared experiences, which is what people typically think about with the metaverse. How do you come together in, whether it be you know Microsoft All Space or Mesh on their platform, or using uh, Epic and Unreal in their platforms, or Meta's horizon world, whatever it might be. The internet of place is what I'd call that. Then the internet of ownership is the other key part of the metaverse, which is new technologies, web three types of technologies, blockchain that I already referred to a little bit that are creating the opportunity to have really unique, verifiable digital identity for people and products and currency. That's revolutionizing how we can really go to the next stage of digital and how we build you know, our Companies and products, and that's why it's a little bit controversial when we say this. But I believe it's very true that over the next decade, as we look at, I talked about cloud, AI, and metaverse earlier. I don't think many doubt cloud and AI at this point, but a lot lot of people doubt the metaverse. But I think you doubt it at your own peril, because the Web three technologies, the evolution of the internet, and the adaptation of how we create experience for people is going to lead to the adoption of of the uh, of these technologies, and it's going to enable radically new capabilities and those that lead. In this, in the move to it, I think we'll have a dramatic advantage.
2: And I understand that Accenture has its own enterprise metaverse, the nth floor. Yes. Can you talk me through that <laughs> a little bit, please?
1: Yeah, just to put that in context, I think there's three ways to categorize the use cases. Of the metaverse. There's the consumer metaverse, which is Nike or you know Gucci, JP Morgan Chase, many that are pioneering. Ways to interact with customers, consumers in the uh, metaverse. There's the enterprise metaverse, which is how you use it in your business. I'll talk about what we're doing there, but then floor in a minute. And then there's the industrial metaverse, which is augmented reality, digital twins, and how you how you bring the metaverse to that side of the operations in your business. We believe those are really the three areas to focus on. What we tackled with the enterprise metaverse is it was our onboarding process. It was. Partly by necessity, we had some research going on to use virtual reality to onboard our employees pre-pandemic. We had a very small scale research project. The pandemic happened. We were still we're a large company. We have now seven hundred fifty thousand employees, roughly. Uh, we were hiring over hundred thousand a year through the pandemic and onboarding that number of employees. It was a challenge to do that virtually. So we said, let's scale up this work we're doing around the end floor, and we tried in our onboarding process and. Successively increase the scale to where, in in this twelve month period, we'll onboard one hundred and fifty thousand employees using our EdFloor metaverse. The employees get a headset when they join the company. They go in for some guided experiences, some orientation, some training. Then they have some unguided activities that they can do of learning, et cetera. And the engagement of the employees is better through this process than the previous way of doing it. The learning retention is better. We have neuroscientists and learning specialists studying this. And so it's a really adding value, and it's a better way of doing the process. Uh, well, we believe it's the largest you know, metaverse example at scale. We, we have uh, lots of client meetings there. We do internal meetings there with our management committee. We've taken our board of directors there, lots of things that we do. And we've scanned our environments. So we have 3D scans of our labs and offices around the world. So I can, and I have taken clients to on a tour of our. Say our labs in France, our labs in Silicon Valley, that they can do you know with this rather than traveling. Which back to our prior discussion is efficient. It's a new way of creating the experience. It's uh, offloading a lot of uh, climate impact uh, from people flying around the old way of doing things. So it's an example of the experiences you can create.
2: Wow! So you can actually say "see you in the metaverse" and you mean it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
1: yeah. The title of our vision last year was "Meet Me in the Metaverse," and that's exactly what we see happening now. Today you can't wear these headsets forever. The headset technology will improve, but I think you run a risk of, of pointing out why it doesn't work today rather than looking at where the technology is going. I think that was a problem with the internet. I still remember talking to companies in the late 1990s that were telling me yeah, that's okay. I don't need a web page or all I need is my corporate directory on the web. That's that's all I'm going to ever need. And they missed you know the inflection point. They fell behind and others captured the opportunity. I think with the metaverse now is the time to look ahead and understand what and how this might change what you do. And and be, you know, leading into that rather than getting stuck behind.
2: Yeah, I know that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I um read Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft's book, Tools and Weapons, and he talks about the promise and peril. So he talks talked about a lot of the positive side of AI and the metaverse, but what are the challenges that are facing us and what are the imperatives to your mind that we need for a responsible metaverse, for example?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And tools and weapons is a it- brilliant book. And uh, Brad and I have worked together on some of these issues uh, that we're talking about. I think the things to keep in mind, there, there is always a bright side and a dark side of any new technology. Uh, if you go back to the, the stone ages when fire was invented, you probably have a group of people saying, this is great. We can cook our meat. We can stay warm. You have another group of people saying, this is terrible. It's going to burn us and hurt us. So with any any technology, there's, there's positives and negatives. It's about us and how we influence it. So with the metaverse, What's particularly important is following the path that I talked about earlier with artificial intelligence. We need to take accountability to create the principles and the mechanisms to make sure it is creating the metaverse we want, that we're creating the worlds and the experiences that we want for ourselves, for our employees, for our customers, for our children, you know, for our communities. And to me, it comes down to three areas that we're working on, and we're working with many companies, many organizations on this. The first is trust. So creating the trust in the environment. So I know that my identity's safe. I know that if I buy products, I really own it, and it's not going to be taken away from me. I know the security is there and such. So trust is one key thing. Safety is another key concern. Uh, how do I know that appropriate safety will be enforced. I don't want to be bullied or I don't want non-inclusive behavior, and toxic behavior, which is an issue in some environments today. So content moderation, behavior moderation and such is critical, uh, along with the safety as a focus on inclusion. And we have the right representation of the right groups, the right people, in the way we're building the world's and then finally, the third area is sustainability, which we've talked a lot about designing this in a sustainable ways that we're utilizing resources appropriately and not taking, you know, to going down the red IT path that I talked about earlier, which is a challenge. And we're going to need to work on this as an industry and as companies deploy the technology because, you know, headsets, uh, the metaverse rendering these environments does consume more competing resources, but there's solutions to do it in a more effective manner.
2: Yeah, brilliant. So, earlier in the year with the World Economic Forum, you and Microsoft collaborated on the global collaboration village in the metaverse. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, the global collaboration village, I think, is a real kind of shining light of what the metaverse can be. I think it's a fantastic use case and a great vision, creating new levels of collaboration and ex- opening up the World Economic Forum to more stakeholders. so it's an amazing vision and I think it shows the real power of applying the metaverse in the right way. So we were so pleased to you know partner with Microsoft on this with uh, the World economic Forum and uh, bring it to life. So it's creating a a virtual forum, so to speak, a global collaboration village with leading places where stakeholders can come together on issues. So uh, there's a focus on climate and uh, how we can preserve climate and uh, natural resources and such. An amazing experience where we take people off to to see forests with biodiversity and, and show why they're at risk and how you protect them and then create the dialogue around that among the stakeholders. It's really illustrating the power of bringing people together much easier and not just you know, occasionally throughout the year through curated conferences and events, but continuously using the power of the metaverse to do that. I think it really is a brilliant vision and a kind of an early, but very powerful example of how to use the metaverse for a lot of good.
2: Are there any books around the metaverse or AI, obviously, because we're talking for the the book club that you recommend to listeners?
1: Yeah, I've got some of my, uh, some of my bookshelf uh, right here. One is uh, by Matthew Ball. It's called the metaverse. Uh, He's one of the leading thinkers, commentators, and followers of what's happening in the metaverse. I highly recommend his book where he goes into all the issues we've talked about and more and talked about a lot of examples of how to bring it to life. Another book that's really stretching the future of what you might think about with the metaverse is a book called Reality Plus. I believe the author is David Chalmers, and he's a uh, philosopher who's looking at the metaverse in a different way in terms of how should and how, you know, might we, you know, use the metaverse as as humans. And it really, it talks about a lot of the concepts in the metaverse from a different perspective and is very thought provoking. So those are two books that I'd recommend.
0: That was author Paul Doherty from Accenture speaking to my colleague, Kate Whiting. Big thanks for joining us on the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast, listen to our sister podcast, Radio Davos and Meet the Leader, and leave us a review. Don't forget to join our two clubs on Facebook for the book club and for podcasts from the World Economic Forum. This episode of the Book Club podcast was presented by my colleague Kate Whiting and myself, Beatrice DiCaro. Production was with Gareth Nolan, and thanks to our podcast editor, Robin Pomeroy. We'll be back soon. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.